Hi, I'm Gus Wallen, and this is not an overnight success, brought to you by Shore & Partners Financial Services. This is a podcast where we sit down with some very successful people from the world of business, entertainment and sport, and chat about their life's journey and what got them to the position that they're in today. In today's episode, we are chatting with Neil Perry. Neil Perry is one of Australia's most influential restaurateurs. He has spent decades creating iconic venues and special experiences through places like Rockpool, Spice Temple, and now his latest creation, Margaret. Neil has also been creating menus for Qantas since 1997 and has published many cookbooks and good weekend columns. Neil's approach to successful business is quite different to what you may expect. He believes in and acts through what he calls the care philosophy. His unique take on what it takes to be successful in the hospitality world and places a lot of importance on building the right culture around you. In this chat, Neil speaks passionately about social issues like climate, sustainability, the pandemic, and supporting visa holders in Australia. And he considers the platforms of which being a successful chef has given him a privilege. As for all these podcasts, Shaw and Partners have generously donated $10,000 to the charity of the choice of our guest. We discuss who gets that money in this chat. The executive producer of this podcast is Keisha Pettit, with production assistance from Kelly Stubbs and Brittany Hughes. We recorded this interview at Margaret while the chefs were staying to prep for lunch service, so you'll hear a fair bit of that in the background. Let's get into our chat with Neil Perry. Neil, good morning. How are you? Good, Gus. And you? I'm very well. We're sitting in Margaret, which is your restaurant down in Double Bay, named after your mum. I love that. Can you tell us why you named it after your mum? Mate, she has been reasonably well, very instrumental in my hospitality career as a restaurateur because uh, my father, it's pretty well documented that my dad, you know, had a massive influence on me in the way that I cook. You know, he was a, a butcher and a fisherman and a gardener and so produce, uh, seasonality, all those sorts of things are really important to me. I didn't realise at the time, but I was getting an amazing education in those by being in the garden with him, fishing with him the sort of meat that he brought home, the knife skills that he, he and my brothers had because they were butchers as well. You know, we had an aviary out the back, so we had chickens and I just sort of took for granted that eggs always tasted that like that, but yeah. they don't necessarily. <laughs> but by the same token, mum was amazing because she was incredibly generous and hospitable. We were sort of a bit of an extended family, Brady Bunch. I was the youngest of seven. And my dad had four kids and my mum had two. And so I was the only one related to everybody. But often there would be cousins or nieces or nephews living for extended periods of time whenever there was issues in the family with us. And that was really mum's sense of generosity and family. And so I run the restaurants that I've had since 1989 through the care philosophy. And that really came from mum. So I sort of thought it was important that this restaurant's the first one I've ever owned 100% on my own, or well, my family owned it with me. So it was important that maybe I honoured her uh, as much as I've talked about my dad because she was just as instrumental. So, yeah. I, I love that story. And, and when you talk about care, can you give us a bit of an understanding of what that philosophy is? Yeah. Because I, I'm assuming someone like you has purpose in your life now and you do things for a certain reason and yeah. care is a big part of that. Yeah, well, look, we do what we do for a reason. You know, we, look, we're a restaurant, sure, bricks and mortars feed people. But the reality of it is we're here to create memories, you know. So that's all a restaurant can do. Like we close at midnight, the last customers leave, the day's done and we start again tomorrow. So, so those memories are what fuels people to talk about us, to want to come back, for us to be able to survive and thrive and continue to grow is that is is the thoughts that people carry around. So 
that's why we do what we do. But the way we are able to do that is through the care philosophy. So it's sort of easy for me or easier for me to get people to understand that uh, this one word can manifest itself right through the entire business. You know, we teach them to care about our suppliers, whether that's uh, our brilliant fishermen or our guys who grow our beef for us and spend three to five years doing that, or indeed somebody making wine or, or the linen company that presses our linen and brings it to us in beautiful shape every day. Like We have to look after that. It's our responsibility. Uh, and then we need to care about the place that we work in. So we're very focused in, you know, Margaret looking as beautiful in 10 years as it looks, you know, the day that we took over. So that only happens if you nurture and care for it and look after it and clean it and be very careful uh, about things when you're working within it. So that whole idea of, of making sure that this place becomes patinaed rather than destroyed is really important. And then caring about each other, that was really fundamental because I started in the front of house and went back of house to cook and did notice that there was quite a uh, sort of a back of house and front of house culture and pitted against each other. So for me, when I started in restaurants, it was important that we actually brought that together and that care for each other was really important. So making sure that we're looking after each other and checking that we're okay and making sure importantly that when we're in service, we're helping where we can, you know, we're putting our hand up and saying we need help. So that, that whole idea of caring for each other is sort of fundamental to what makes the restaurant work. Uh, and then we have to care about community. We're a small part of a, a larger community. And if we are blessed by being looked after by the community, it's important that we, you know, give back. So we've always been heavily involved in fundraising and working with charities and and making sure that people that are less fortunate than us get as much of our time as they possibly can. So we encourage our team to volunteer and we encourage our team to work with us when we're raising funds and give their time and they and they all do very generously, which is amazing. And then we need to care about sustainability because the planet is such an important, fragile thing. We live in it and we have a lot of impact on it, but we talk about it a lot in, in as chefs and restaurateurs because the lifeblood of what we do is the ingredients that we use. So it's really uh, important to us that we're looking after the sea, that we're looking after the earth and the sky and, and that, that importantly, the planet is front of mind. So whether it's, you know, composting or making sure that we're not putting waste in the ground or we're making sure that we're working with sustainable fishermen or farmers or guys who treat their animals humanely. I mean, you know, the reality is we eat them, but there's a big difference between how they're raised and that, that impact on both the animal and importantly the planet. So we're very focused on talking to the guys about regenerative farming, sustainable fishing, wild caught harvests and all the sorts of things that are really important to make hopefully the future of the planet for our children important. So through all that we hope that we're caring, you know, for the customer obviously at the end. But strangely when I used to do this talk and I did a lot of town halls when I first started with Qantas 25 years ago, people would say, oh, Neil, don't, doesn't the customer come first? But uh, the reality of it's a bit like mise en place. You don't make the dish. You kind of make all the parts of it and then you put the dish together. So the care philosophy makes all the parts so that we're ready for the customers to walk into the restaurant. And then when they do, we're able to look after them because of all of that work we've done together to make sure that we're ready uh, and, and that we're ready to care for the customer. So that one philosophy has been really fundamental to me running uh, the businesses and getting everybody on board and coming in the one direction because restaurants are you know essentially just bricks and mortar and they're beautiful sure i mean this is a very beautiful restaurant but 
the thing that brings it to life and the thing that makes it special is the staff mm. uh, and them being able to understand what I'm trying to achieve and for them to be able to indeed bring that, you know, thing to life. So uh, I'm really, you know, fundamentally sort of attached to them doing the right thing because I can lead all I want, but it's a team of people that make it happen. I was going to ask you about that staffing because it's such a difficult thing at times, but connection seems to be the one thing I love about your, about the care philosophy and the fact you've connected all things together and they're all moving in the right direction with the same headspace. Yeah. How hard is it to get good staff, keep them? Yeah. And, you know, that's like you said, they're the lifeblood, right? Yeah. Well, look, it's hard to get good staff and it's harder at the moment after the pandemic because a lot of visa staff have gone home. A lot of people have left the industry. But the most important thing is to build culture. So if you don't have culture within your restaurant, it's hard to get people to buy into the care philosophy in the first place. So it's sort of like leading by example. So I've got to, you know, nurture my staff, treasure them, look after them. You know, I always make sure that every night after service, I walk past and thank each of them for being involved in what, you know, hopefully was a great service. I make sure that they know that I really appreciate what they do. You know, you pay them well, of course, but more importantly, you make sure the environment that they work in. So family meals is really important. You know, the staff Christmas party is really important. All those little things that are add-on to what an expectation is and making sure that the environment's good. So taking toxic people out, making sure people fit within the family, making sure that, that everybody understands that we are indeed a, a family working together. And so I always say to people, you know, there's culture in business. You can't stop that. You don't get a choice about that. You just choose whether it's good culture or bad culture. Mm. So that's really the thing that for me is paramount in this restaurant, that we provide a place where really good culture can grow. So if we go back a little bit, your mum's given you a wonderful philosophy, your dad has given you these wonderful <coughs> lessons and your brothers are yep. butchers as well so forth. At what stage do you go, okay, I'm going to give this a crack. This is something I could make a living out of. I could actually be in this industry forever. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it happened to me when I was 18 and left school. So I was going to go traveling before starting university and I decided to earn some extra money. I mean, you know, it was not mutually exclusive of most people within Australia at that stage who would use waiting and working in restaurants as an extra way of earning money to potentially go traveling. Yeah. And I started in a, I did a, a little course actually, and then I started in a restaurant and it was incredible. I really just fell in love with it from the minute I walked into the restaurant and started working within that environment. And I think it's because I really enjoy people. And so it's, you don't get any more people than restaurants, right? You, you're working with people, you're looking after people. It's very, there's no other way, you know, they haven't invented the robot yet that can do it. So yeah. it was really kind of love at first sight. And I spent the first seven years of my career running restaurants and being involved in the front of house in restaurants. But I always loved cooking. I was always, you know, cooking dinner parties at home. and reading. Were, you, were you good? <clears throat> yeah, I was pretty good, actually. I mean, I've been cooking with my dad and mum since I was very young. And I loved reading about food, so I used to buy cookbooks, a bit lame, but, you know, I, in 1978, I bought a bunch of really fantastic cookbooks and it was amazing, actually, because it's sort of, I love the ones like Great Chefs of France and things that actually told the story of what a chef's life was all about, um, even though I was working front of house, so, but I was doing things like going to the market and buying fish because I understood fish really well because of my father and mm. fishing and it was really part of our sort of almost our cultural heritage about working with fish. And then, you know, reading and reading and reading and, 
And I, I was sort of running restaurants, eating in good restaurants because I was earning good money. I was buying wine. I was drinking wine. I was tasting wine. So I was growing that part of my sort of you know, restaurateur experience. I was doing the wages. I was employing people and doing training and also so, so university stuff. was gone. <laughs> skiing. Yeah, that was gone. I decided <laughs> I was going to stick in the business. And and then it's, at one stage, I just decided I really felt you know I'd always had a yearning to kind of fulfil this desire to cook professionally. I just don't buy an accident. I was working at where Catalina is actually. It was the sales at Rose Bay. And I was a manager there and the chef who was there on Sundays actually had an accident. He had a parachuting accident. He didn't die or anything. He just misstepped the landing and he hurt his back. So he was essentially off for a week. And I'd called the pass on uh, on this side as the manager on really busy things and you know put that together. That was pretty straightforward and easy for me. So I actually just went behind the pass and, and helped plate some food and called the service for the various sections. And I just straight away realized that I just love the energy of being there. And so I went straight to Damien Pignolet, who's actually in our kitchen now. He's come across some pretty hard times, so he's on the pension. And so we give him enough work every week to just make his life a little bit better. But he was in uh, in a three-hat restaurant called Claude's and with his, his wife, Josephine, and that's why my oldest daughter's called Josephine. And he said, come and cook with me. And so I started working with them. And then he introduced me to Stephanie Alexander. I went and worked with her for three months. And I worked with Jenny Ferguson for a few weeks. And then Gay Bilson rang and said, come and help me with Burrell Waters. And I sort of went up there. And then uh, I, I was working front of house there and said, look, no, Gay, I really, really, really want to cook. And found myself sort of watching the guys cooking in the kitchen thinking, oh, I can do better than that. <laughs> and, um, and, I, uh, and, I, and I worked at the Bayswater Brasserie for about three months when it first opened. It was just mental. I mean, literally 350 people walked in the first night and there's about five of us in the kitchen. It was just <laughs> crazy. And we were open breakfast, lunch and dinner then, so it was just relentless and you were working like, from seven in the morning till midnight every day. And at that time, an old girlfriend of mine was working at a place called Simpsons, Peter Simpson, who used to own Rogues originally. Peter died you know, quite some time ago, but she was working in the city and she said, I'm working with Judy McMahon and her and Michael, they used to work at Barrow. They've just bought a place called Baron Joey House at Palm Beach and they're looking for a chef. And I'd really only been cooking for a year, but I sort of had these kind of grand plans for my life so um, you're, co- you're confident yeah uh, probably overconfident <laughs> so i uh for no good reason so i jumped on my motorbike drove up to meet michael at, at sort of midday at baron joey well not at baron joey house it was actually at his place he lived on palm beach road it's not a bad there. little drive up on your bike thinking i could do this every yeah, day probably. well he sat down opened a bottle of riesling i just remember that we sat there and drank that we might have even started on another one but <laughs> And we just had great conversations because I was 26, you know, I really knew food. I'd worked in really great places, albeit for not very long parts of time. So I was sort of staging, but I'd, I'd been a manager and I, and I understood wine. We were talking about wine together and I guess we just hit it off. So he foolishly gave me the job as the, <laughs> as the head chef at Baron Joey House in 1982. I started in November, it was about the 3rd of November. And in January, Leo Schofield came up and did a story on myself and Peter Doyle at Reflections, gave us both 17 out of 20 and said the kid's a star. And I actually never looked back from there. So that was the star. Then I went on to do Blue Water Grill. And then I opened Rock Pool in 1989 and went on to open the other restaurants through the 90s and 
early 2000, 2006, Rockpool Bar and Grill, Spice Temple. And then sold the business and I, mean, I was still a shareholder in the Rockpool Dining Group, but then came to Margaret. And you can just see how happy you are, you know, you're just yeah. content. Yeah, well, I'm getting to, you know, create my own culture again and that's really gratifying and so all the responsibility for everything that happens here every day is on my shoulders and I was my own boss with some partners since 1983 so it was a little bit more difficult when I did sell and had to answer to people so maybe <laughs> I'm just not a really good employee. Yeah, better as the boss. <laughs> I want to talk to you about Qantas because for a yeah. lot of people you know sitting in those comfy Qantas seats and looking up and seeing you there and then looking at the menu and so forth how did that come about, that whole you you know, cooking the food or creating the food for Qantas? Well, Jeff Dixon was in for dinner last night at Margaret, actually. And so Jeff approached me in uh, 1997 to do the food for, well, he actually approached me and said, we're getting some really brilliant new hardware, but I've got to fix the software. So the hardware was beautiful new reclining first class seats, which were collaboration with British Airways on their fully flat bed, first one in existence and so we were going to launch that in november 97 and so in may 97 he asked if i'd come on board and do some work with them and sort of after i walked through some of the things they want me to do and so forth i kind of rang him and said look you know you've just got such a great brand i, I think Rockpool's an awesome brand i've spent the last 10 years building it and i don't think there's any value in us getting together if we're not going to do it properly and so, uh, you know, about three days later, I got a phone call. He'd actually heard me speak about service at a tourism task force. And I think he realized how focused I was about the entire experience. And I would talked about what we had to do coming up to the Olympics and from a service perspective, how right we had to get it to showcase how great Sydney is and how brilliant Australia is. So um, he said to me, what do you mean by I've got to do, you know, we've got to do it right? And I said, well, look, it will require me to have staff. I want to do the whole thing. I don't want to do a dish on the menu. You know, I'd like to do the whole premium over time. And, and he said, well, you know, let's do it. So he signed me up. And then after sort of six months, he said, I want you to spend more time in the business. So how much do I have to pay you? And <laughs> so that contract grew um, into something, you know, quite large. And, and I had 12 people working on it just before the pandemic. And we're back to five now. I think we'll probably get to about seven, but uh, won't be ever quite as big because Qantas isn't going to be quite as large as what it was. But it's very effective and really ready for anything now. The business itself is really brilliantly structured. The management team's amazing under Alan and the guys. And so being involved there and being there for 25 years is incredible. So we've been there for sort of a quarter of Qantas's life, which is really quite extraordinary. And I feel like, you know, I say to people, it was kind of like somebody saying, oh, would you like to play for the Wallabies, you know? <laughs> so, because there's only one Qantas, and I am was born in 1957, so Qantas to me is the most iconic Australian brand. Uh, I feel like all Australians own it and it belongs to us. Um, and I think in a sense, you know, the spirit of Australia would be nothing without Qantas. So, uh, I agree. When you, when you walk on one of their planes... I feel like I'm home already, no yeah. matter where I am in the world. Yeah. And even more so when I was younger, you know, there'd be a bunch of surfies from Bondi with the old Daily Telegraph yeah. from the day before that they flew up with into LA and you jump on the plane and they could tell you about the sports scores or you felt, you just felt like you were back in Australia yeah. as soon as you, you put foot on the plane. 
Yeah, no, definitely. And, and it's a great – it's just so fantastic to have people believe in you so much. And so from Jeff to Alan and entire management team, a lot of celebrity chefs, whatever you want to call them, will – We'll work with airlines producing a dish and going and, and doing the PR and all that sort of stuff. And, but, you know, we, we do 650, 700 dishes a year, you know, full-time staff working within the environment, me talking to Alan, sitting in his office, having dinner with him, travelling with him, um, the rest of the management team as well. We're really, really tight. So to be able to be, I suppose, listened to is really gratifying. I do actually think it's the strength of Qantas. We're all very much sort of allowed to, to bring our creative space to the airline and they make it work within their environment rather than... I do see a lot of corporate people who ask for guidance, but they don't really ever take it. Mm. Um, I've been involved with one big business that was like that and you just get tired of beating your head up against a brick wall. And you sound like the type of guy, if they're not going to do that, once you agree on something, you're all in. Yeah, And once, and once you're all in, then they've got to play their part. Yeah. If not, you'll walk away. Yeah, well, there's no point in, you know, lending yourself to something that's, is only doing lip service to it. It's not, I kind of have this idea where I kind of try to draw a, you know, a circle around my life. And I think about all the things that are important to me and what my uh, kind of life stands for and the values that I have. And then I only really measure everything that I'm asked to do by does it fit within that realm? And if it does, I, I'm usually and, – and I feel like there is a relationship there between the people that are involved because that's really important. Because at the end of the day, money's not the driving force. It's really making sure that you're working with people that you enjoy working with, people that you believe in, things that you can, you can actually say, I wholeheartedly believe that this is a great product, a great idea – a great thing to be involved in that it's so there's brand synergies but more importantly that again we have this mutual respect for each other and so I kind of draw that circle and if the things don't fit wholly within that I just say no all the time and I get asked to do a lot of stuff I bet so for me you know you've got to have that community angle aspect you've got to be sustainable you've got to be quite pure in the thoughts about what you know you do and where you fit within the industry that you're involved in I mean some of one of the things is I, I work really closely with say Cobram Estate, which is a really fantastic Australian oil, and they work with us here at Margaret. And I do that because I honestly believe it's one of the great oils in the world. And I work really closely with Copper Tree Farms, which is an amazing butter that we've produced together, which I honestly truly believe, again, is one of the great butters in the world, and it's Australian. So they're the sorts of things that fit within my, my realm. But I, I don't just kind of you know lend my name to these guys. I actually work to make them better, strive to, to work with them to get people to understand what they are and to get them to understand that they are world-class products. So, that's, so if that's you put I your do. name on it, it's properly put your it's name on it. It's actually real, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. not just a rubber stamp. No, no, I'm involved in making production, selection. Yeah, I'm, I'm not really interested in doing something that is just Neil Perry's out there and he's got some pulling power. So, yeah, let's, let's stick his name on it. So that's not... I love I that. Yeah. I can just tell by talking to you for this first 20 minutes that you're all in and whatever you say, you believe it. Yeah, and I, and I love that about you. When did chefs become rock stars? Like, because it, <laughs> it, it happened, didn't it? I mean, we've got shows that are number one in Australia. Yeah. You know, millions of people watching it and so forth. And I've met a few and they're all ripper blokes and, and girls, but a lot of blokes in particular. Why do you think you've become rock stars? 
Look, it's really interesting because, you know, even when I first started Bar and Joey House, there was that sort of movement going, but it certainly gained absolute acceleration, as you said, through the 21st century where television, I mean, magazines were probably the beginning. Television's picked it up and run with it. Certainly the celebrity chef, you know, Australia's been driven by, you know, first Europe and then America driving celebrity. I mean, I always say, if someone says you're a celebrity chef, I always say I work for a living, so not really. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, but I think it's really interesting. I think we're, one of the things that if you're going to have that, you've got to use your voice to make sure you get as much out of that as you possibly can. And when I say that, I'm often very disappointed with a lot of my colleagues and peers who in times that it's important to say something, don't. And I don't know whether they're afraid that if they speak up and ask the government to do the right thing, that they'll have a black mark put against them or if they say something that might alienate one of their customers. or So I like when I'm talking about clarity around the health orders when we open up and we were talking about vaccines versus anti-vaccine, you know, I felt I had to actually come out and say from a restaurateur's point of view to the government, we need real clarity around this and we have to be backed by a health order because otherwise you're asking us to be the police and it's going to be really impossible. And more importantly, I don't want other restaurateurs to think I'm not bound by health orders. So, of course, I'll have my unvaccinated mates in because you can see what we've done by stepping through this really carefully. But that, talking about, you know, when I started Hope Delivery, about the government indeed making sure that they supported visa staff through JobKeeper because we needed these people when we restarted the industry. You know, and then I turned into a charity that helped feed them. Things like I felt really compelled when we had the same-sex marriage debate. You know, it's a basic human right. I mean, I think about my kids, what I try to say to them when they finish working here. I don't want them to be better cooks and better managers and better, you know, waiters. I want them to be better people because I want them to think about politics and the environment and human rights and how we live together and work together and, you know, how we help each other. So... So I often get really disappointed that people don't use their power that they do have to, you know, get the government to think about things because they do listen to people like us and they know that we've got a lot of people, you know, whether it's on Instagram or whether, you know, when they see us in the paper, they believe in what we say or the newspaper or the radio or whatever. So I do get quite, you know, disappointed that some celebrity chefs are quite hollow. Mm. <clears throat> and they don't really stand for anything and they don't actually come out and talk about what they stand for. So that disappoints me about celebrity. But getting back to that's a complete tangent to where I, I was, but, but getting back to that situation is like it, it is really quite crazy. I mean, cooking is a craft. You know, we're basically working with our hands. It's really a kind of nice labouring job. <laughs> so that's what it is, you know, and you get to go into the kitchen every day and, and work with your hands and taste and, cook and, and serve people and really importantly, hopefully, give them joy, which is a really important part of what hospitality is all about. So how that became sort of part of people really looking at chefs as if they're all-knowing and all-powerful and all-being is, is just beyond me, really. I'm pleased that it's like that because it does give me the power to talk about things that I'm passionate about. So that's one positive, but I do scratch my head sometimes about where people have gotten to <laughs> over this over time. How can you stay as fit? I mean, you said you were born in 57, was it? 1957, yeah. 1957, <coughs> so you're in your 60s. You look fantastic. Yeah, thank you. How are you not the size of a house? <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, I, I, you know, and I, and I talk about a lot in my books. I kind of preach a lot about balance. So I think balance is important in everything in life. So 
but no more so in diet. So I really try to sort of eat sustainably. I try to have a really balanced diet between, you know, I eat a lot of vegetables, I eat a lot of seafood, I eat a bit of meat, I love it, but I don't eat it all the time. I exercise a fair bit. I'm more working a lot. I walk when I'm- On your feet? Oh, my feet a lot. I'm walking a lot. So I do a lot of natural exercise. I think I'm kind of genetically sort of blessed as well. I've always sort of maintained a reasonable body weight and I've got, you know, reasonable skin. And I do work with La Mer actually for the last 15 years of going to give me skin products and they're awesome. <laughs> yeah, it looks um, like it. And I, and I always sort of was one of those people when I was younger, I just tried to look after my skin. I tried to keep healthy. You know, didn't want to get my hair cut. <laughs> Use good shampoo. Hey, can I just have one second? Yeah, of course. Good to see all the fish coming in. <laughs> Just quickly interrupting the episode to say a very big thank you to the sponsor of this podcast, and that is Shore and Partners Financial Services. Shore and Partners are an Australian investment and wealth management firm who manage over twenty-eight billion dollars of assets under advice. With seven offices across Australia, Shore and Partners act for and on behalf of individuals, institutions, corporates, and charities. For more info, you can check out their website at shoreandpartners.com.au. That's S-H-A-W for sure. Shore and Partners Financial Services, your partners in building and preserving wealth. Now let's get back into the episode. So Neil, you were talking about you know all the business stuff that you do. You're a chef. You do cookbooks, Qantas. Yeah. How do you balance your life up to be a good hubby, a good father? How's that part of your world work? Well, I've made them all work in the restaurant so they can see me. So, you know, my wife calls a pass at lunchtime and dinner. My youngest 15-year-old says that she's an orphan, but she, <laughs> she and Macy, the 17-year-old, are coming in and polishing and so forth. And uh, my daughter, my oldest daughter, Josephine, runs the reservations and the front desk. So, look, this is very much a family business. And, you know, it's really weird. I've spent... Uh, like 40 years of my life, building my career, building restaurant empire, traveling all around the country, uh, opening restaurants in Perth and Melbourne and Sydney. And I finally realized that actually what I want to do is just own one restaurant that I'm responsible for and I'm in every day with my amazing team. And that's Margaret. And my family very much fits into that. Mm. I'm opening a really awesome bakery with two brilliant young people, Mike and Mia Russell from Baker Blue next door. My long-term wine director, Richard, and I have just sort of formed a company where we're importing wines into Australia. We're going to sell Australian and imported wines in a wine shop that we're doing together. Is that and all going to be in and around Margaret? That's all, and- yeah. That's just over here at number two Cooper Street. And then I'm opening a small bar with a really great mate of mine who runs Dante, who owns Dante in New York, which was number one bar in the world the year before last, number two last year, number 10 three years ago. So, he re- And he started the bar program at Rockpool and Spice Temple with me and in the GFC times, 2009. So I've made quite a bit of money and out of restaurants. So I kind of feel that one, this is my base and my family here. That, so my family live here, work here, and hopefully come to you know have it one day when, whenever I'm here or not here. But And then I want to give some other guys who I really believe in opportunities. So that's what the bakery's about and that's what the bar's about. That's what the wine shop's about because I've got the financial stability to be able to make that happen for those guys and to give them their chance in life yeah that, that's sort of where i'm at but i kind of call it i call it my retirement but i'm working about 80 hours yeah, a week so i, was I don't know say. i don't know where that fits in but i'm incredibly happy and in where i've arrived in my life mm. and i've probably knocked back three really big projects in the last three months 
that Neil Perry five or ten years ago would have jumped at. And the kind of post-pandemic, Neil Perry is really happy with where he is in his life. Yeah, my family are just awesome. They're just supporting me so much into this business. It's incredible. I love the fact you've got them all working with you as well now. It's really good. If you can't get home, bring them, bring, them yeah, to, yeah, bring them to work. Exactly, exactly. Could I ask you some questions around other restaurants in the world? Like yeah. if when you go to the places you love to go to, whether it's New York or London, Rome, yeah, Tokyo, yeah. do you go going, oh, I'm going to have three nights in Tokyo. I'm going to go here, here and here. Or are you a street guy? Are you a go and get a Macca's every now and again? Like what? what? No, 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 don't go and get a McDonald's. I get a good burger, but not a McDonald's. <laughs> No, I generally plan a fair bit, but then leave enough space to be able to, you know, investigate new things and drop into things that people, you know, I know people in all of those places and chefs and restaurateurs and food writers. And so I, I kind of gleam them for the where I should be dropping in and, you know, yeah. having the street food or the bowl of noodles or the whatever. But, you know, I have sort of, I'm a sort of a creature of habit as well. I love great restaurants that stay. And are great for a really long period of time. So if I was to go to San Francisco, for instance, I, you know, my fine dining thing would be to go up to the French Laundry and see my great mate Thomas Keller, who I love so much. And that restaurant is just unbelievable. But then drop into San Fran and go to the original sustainable restaurant, which is Alice Waters Shape and East. You know, she's been doing it for fuck forty five years or something. You know, like that nineteen seventy one. It might have been. So maybe it's fifty years. Yeah, it is actually. Wow. So she's been talking about <laughs> farm to table for 50 years, right? So she's ahead of the game. Yeah, she, <laughs> she's the game. Yeah, I always love eating there. And I go to Cafe Zuni where I love Judy Rogers is no longer alive, but I remember interviewing her in the early 90s and eating in her restaurant when I went there. And, you know, I've been going there every time I go to San Francisco since 1990. And every time I've had the most beautiful meal. The same with Quince and Catania in San Fran and in London I always go to the River Cafe I just couldn't go to London without going to the River Cafe because I, I loved Rose and Ruth and Rose sadly passed away but Ruth's just amazing and her team and beautiful produce cooked beautifully I mean you know I sort of when I talk to the tables here at at Margaret I just say we use the best produce in the country and we truly do a lot of people say that but we actually do every piece of fish comes from a fisherman that we know and we were talking to and he tells us what he's bringing off his boat and it flies here and we dry fill it. It kisses the grill and every piece of meat we know, guys at the farms who grow them. And, you know, I basically say we just take the best produce in Australia and try not to fuck it up. <laughs> and so we talk about what we can take out of a dish, not what we can put into it. So that's our style, Rich and myself. And so that works really well for us. I've built a lifetime of reputation on that and yeah. So I'm never going to change. You never <laughs> are. I had a lovely meal with Jacko at the French Laundry oh, right, uh, for yeah, our yeah. 50th birthday. So it was about 15 of us and we all came in from different parts of the world and we went to LA initially and, and then we went down to San Francisco and went to the French Laundry. So I'm a bit of a fussy eater. I'm like, give me a cheese on toast or give me <laughs> a well-done steak <laughs> with mashed potato. I'm, yeah. I'm pretty easy. So Thomas comes out with this and he comes out and, of course, he greets Jacko. And yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. sure he doesn't do this with all tables, but we had that sort of a big room out to the garden. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and fantastic. the guy took the champagne off with the yeah, samurai yeah, sword, all that savor, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sitting there and all these little bits of meal are coming and they all look beautiful and stuff, but I'm, you know, a bit of a heathen. <laughs> so Jacko says to him, look, I've got a bloke here. He's my best mate. I've known him for 45 years, but – 
yeah, he's hopeless on the tooth. He just likes what he likes. <laughs> so Thomas goes, what would you actually like? And I said, what I'd really love is some cheese on toast with Worcester sauce and some donuts. And I, I don't know why I felt that, but that's what I felt like. He goes, Fuh. and he, he oh, laughs. Oh, they make the best donuts there. So he laughs it <laughs> off, right? So half an hour later, this cheese on toast arrives, and it is the finest cheese on toast. It's, it's cheese on the outside as well as the inside, and he's made like a Branston pickle. Yeah, yeah. He's made, or someone's made it up for him. And then about 45 minutes later, a tower of mini cinnamon donuts yeah. arrived. And he came out and he sat with us and we had a scotch and we lit up yeah, a cigar yeah. and we all shared the cigar pre-COVID. Yeah, yeah. And he just he said, this is, I'm just going to have the rest of the afternoon off. And he sat with us out in that garden and it was, I mean, I'm it's glad magic, I didn't have to pay the it? bill. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. It's but crazy. I think everyone's got to have an experience like that. Yeah, yeah. Once he's one lifetime. of the most generous people. He, uh, he and I have been great friends for a long time. We sort of met each other at the top 50 restaurants in the world so and then i sort of hatched a plan with Qantas to bring he and hessen out to do charity work with with starlights we did the ultimate dinner but we ended up doing seven of them together so we spent a lot of time in australia together but also i spent a lot of time with him in new york and and the laundry and every time i've been you know the sense of generosity is amazing i went there i went to the say i was in my business partner's 60th must be 10 years ago and I said to her, oh, it's the 60th birthday, we'd really love to come. She's just oddly in New York at the same time as myself and Khan and Catherine, my two chefs, used to work at Rock Pool and my beautiful daughter, Josephine, who was at that time 17. So um, I think they, they forgot about that and just you know, <laughs> so, a couple of wines. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just a magnum of Cristal arrives. And, you know, we have this incredible dinner that lasted so many hours and amazing wine. And then, you know, asked for the bill, this beautiful handwritten note with, Thank you and happy birthday from Aww. Thomas. But he's just so generous. There's so many times he's done that. I did my 60th birthday with him at the French Laundries. I think you're probably as generous as he is, so it, it works both ways. Yeah, and the yeah, fact yeah, it's good to have you both each in each other's lives. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, Neil, would you send a meal back? Like, are you that sort of guy? If- no, 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 I wouldn't do that. You know, I just go to a restaurant to relax and enjoy. So if I don't really love something, I just wouldn't eat it. So, yeah, no, I'm not the sort of person who jumps up and down and I wouldn't want to sort of put that on the poor person in the kitchen and and uh, it's just not in my nature to be like that. I'm sort yeah. of more of a nurturing person. Yeah. Most definitely if I really enjoy something, I go and I tell people that I really loved it and, and try and make sure that they know that I really appreciate the effort that they put in. Who inspires you in this world? I really love, from a chef's point of view, people like Thomas Keller, you know, people like Ruth uh, Rogers, who's had the River Cafe for 35 years and still there. You know, I still go there for lunch or dinner and see her bouncing around the kitchen and, and having that one single focus of making that restaurant great. I love that sort of thing. You know, I've, I've really loved people like Obama. I thought, you know, it was just such a shame that the Senate was made him such a lame president because he had so many great ideas. And then Trump came in and, you know, I mean, to pull apart things like Obamacare, you know, to see America during the pandemic rushing to try and get a national health system because the richest country in the world doesn't really have a national health system makes you realise how lucky we are in Australia for all the things that we do have. So, yeah, people like that uh, are really, really inspiring who really, I think, are incredibly genuine and absolutely do things for the right reason. He was president because he wanted to make people's lives better, the world a better place. You know, you get people like Trump. I'm not actually sure why he wanted to be president, but he thought it was the world's biggest reality TV show, I guess. Yes. 
Do you cook at home? Not that you're at home very much by the sounds of your work ethic, mm. but do you like that or do you I like cooking at home? Yeah. Does your wife cook as well? Are yeah, your yeah. Sam cooks at home. You know, the girls don't show a lot of interest in cooking. I've tried a few times. I, mean, I often say to them, you know, you guys are going to leave home and starve to death. But uh, <laughs> these days, I suppose they all know, you know, how to dial Uber Eats or <laughs> whatever it is. Yeah, no, Sam's a really lovely cook. We cook together and it really is you know, nice to, again, eat beautiful produce and eat at home and be relaxed and having a great bottle of wine. I mean, I love restaurants and I love eating out, but often I'll sort of go, you know, I can actually probably cook something better myself or it's just simpler, you know, and it's easier that there might not be my favourite restaurant open on a Monday or, you know, whatever. So it's easy for me to make a great sandwich or a roasted chook or stir fry something. Do you always get a, a seat at the restaurants you want to go to? Do you know, I had a funny, if there's a funny experience, I, I met a guy called Neil Perry at Rockpool Bar and Grill about five years ago. And he said to me, you know what? It's the best cooking is Neil Perry because I always get the best seat in the house. <laughs> Never get the, sorry, sir, no room tonight. No. So generally speaking, I'm a really terrible booker at restaurants. Like I never think too far ahead. So I am lucky that I can text mates and go, can I come in for dinner tonight? <laughs> They'll sort something out for yeah, you. Yeah. What would be your favourite? Like, I love a sandwich. You mentioned a sandwich before. Plus, I'm a, I'm a dessert guy. Yeah. You wouldn't know it for looking at yeah. me. Um, but I like the simple stuff, like a, just a really good club sandwich yeah, and yeah. A, in New York, like a nice vanilla cheesecake or yeah, something, yeah. not too much. It doesn't have to be too big, just a little taste yeah. at the end of something. What would be your favourite Mate, I lo- look, it's funny you say because I love sandwiches, right? So I just wrote a cookbook. It's got everything I love to, to cook just came out. There are 23 sandwiches in the first chapter. Well played. So, yeah, there were supposed to be three, and I, I got to about 25, and they had to – Did you get excited? We took a couple out, yeah, <laughs> because at home – and I'm quite famous on Instagram for the sandwiches I put up there. So, um, you know, to me, it's one of the reasons why I'm getting involved in a bakery. I love bread. So, you know, sandwiches are really – to me, they're the perfect food if you're putting great ingredients in them and you've got great bread. It's layering up beautiful single flavours that come together to make something really incredible. Uh, and the other thing I love is, uh, you know, noodles or pasta. So ramen or stir fried noodles or, or indeed, you know, we, one of the pastas I cook at home for Sam a lot is we just do prawns, pistachio and chili and spaghetti. So it's a very Sicilian sort of style dish with olive oil. But, you know, it's sort of, you're really thinking a lot about the pasta itself, but the prawns and, you know, add such a great flavor and the nut. And so, yeah, but ramen I, I love. So I love Asian food. So I eat a lot of noodles and, Stir fries. I haven't got a lot of time left with you, so I want to do a few quick fire questions. The most famous person that you've cooked for and have you felt under those conditions under pressure or do you always feel like you know you got it under control but you're human at the end of the day? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I've cooked for heaps of people. You know, I know Hugh really well, so I've cooked for him lots of times, but, you know, he's come around home and I've cooked for him and, He's um, easy because he's always hungry. Yeah, He'll yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, Especially yeah. if he's not on his sort of chicken yeah. chicken diet. The doing Wolverine whatever. diet. Wolverine yeah. diet. But, yeah, look, I know heaps of politicians and heaps of famous stars and, and stuff. And I, I never, I just sort of really try and you know, focus on cooking the best I can every day, doing the best I can, and I always think that that's enough. So, I mean, you know, you get excited about things. I remember when Michael Hutchins brought Elle McPherson in one time when she was really young in at Rockpool right back in the early 90s because I knew him reasonably well and used to go to the studio when they were making albums and stuff. So, 
So I uh, go down Chinatown eating with them. and But, yeah, she was just so phenomenally beautiful and Atlanta Christians. And, you know, mm. you kind of get nervous around women like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not politicians or, or, or industrialists. Yeah, yeah. What about a lazy Susan? I do love a meal with a lazy Susan. I love a good Chinese feed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You- no, I love a lazy Susan. Like, you know, we spent our life kind of, you know, one of the reasons the Golden Century was so famous is Tets and I used to go there all the time. And so everyone who was involved in food would always want to be at the Golden Century after work and stuff. And there's nothing more fun than kind of putting in a big Friday or Saturday and you kind of get the customers out and clean down the kitchen and you get to the Century and it's sort of like one o'clock in the morning and you order all the food and it hits the table and you're drinking beer and, you know, talking about the week. And there's a, a sense of family and and camaraderie that's uh, really extraordinary and that really revolves around that lazy Susan and cold beer. Yeah. You've done so much in this world, you know, you really have. If you look down, and I've done this, written down all the stuff that you've done from awards through to the yeah. restaurants and the empire that you've created, if you stopped it all now, what would be the thing that you're most proud of? I think, you know, there's a couple of things. One would be getting in the top 50 restaurants in the world without any understanding of how it happened or what was going on because the whole philosophy is about creating memories. So they asked 400 people around the world to name five great restaurant experiences from one to five. So enough people around the world said Rockpool to put us in at number four in the world in the top 50 restaurants. So to me, our team had done mission, mission accomplished. Yeah. You know, we'd created great memories. And then some of the really crazy things like to be on a stamp, you know, I mean, you know, you're not many Australians have been on stamps, but to be selected when they did the last and the stamps, the culinary version of that. And, and the other thing I thought was, you know, when I got my, got my AM was really interesting. It's like you start cooking and you kind of expect awards to come and you've got restaurants and you're putting yourself out there to be critiqued and awarded. And, and so all of those things, you know, are, are always gratefully accepted, but, you know, you have an expectation of you putting yourself out there and you utilise those to get your staff to motivate and so forth and benchmark against other restaurants. But when government sort of says to you, you've done a lot for your industry and the community and that really comes from left field and you don't really think about, you know, that ever happening um, and it happens, it's really actually quite gratifying and I, I, I think that's one of the um, my most favourite things that have happened to me in my career. That's beautiful. Last five questions, and they're real quick quick ones, and the last one is probably the most important one for you because it's your heart and your charity and where we'd like to give $10,000 yeah, through absolutely. Earl and, and Al at Shaw and Partners. Your favourite holiday destination? San Sebastian. So Sounds great. <laughs> um, Food's amazing there. <laughs> yeah. Is everything worked out with food in your eyes uh, yeah. when you think about it? Yeah, yeah. I don't think about surfing trips like Lane would. <laughs> yeah. Your favourite quote or something that you live your life by, like a, a thought? Yeah. I think, you know, the cornerstone of good cooking is to source the finest produce. I mean, I've been saying that ever since I started Rockpool and it's the foundation of Margaret. Your favourite movie? Skyfall. Yeah, great flick. Have you seen the new Bond? No, I, I, you know what? And I love him as Bond. Like I just thought, as a matter of fact, really underrated, but I thought the second one, so it was Casino Royale and then Quantum of Solace. I actually thought that was the best Bond movie and then Skyfall came along. But I'm, I'm you know, Quantum of Solace was like, I just thought he was really intense in that, particularly at the end. But anyway. Great Bond. <clears throat> great Bond. Yeah, yeah, the best Bond. Favourite uh, book? Are you a reader? Uh, yeah, I, I've got 
nearly 3,000 cookbooks. So I'm yeah. a tragic on cookbooks and most of them are, are, are not just, a lot of them are not just recipes, fundamental to how that chef thinks or whatever. But I'd have to go back to say Great Chefs of France. I'd probably read it. I've had it since 1978 and I'd probably skim through it and get back into it, you know, once every five years. That sort of kick-started the, <laughs> yeah, the, the passion started, when you were a yeah, teenager yeah. with your mum and dad. Yeah. And favourite charity, which is obviously such an yeah. important thing for you and the, the reason behind it. And what will $10,000 from Shaw and Partners do for the charity? Yeah, well, at Hope Delivery. I mean, I started it uh, in, t- in 2020. It started the fundamental core of it to feed visa staff who had no support from the government and who were staying in Australia. It then moved on to work through a whole lot of other areas through refugees, women and children shelters, youth shelters, and now is working very strongly with Oz Harvest in the Indigenous space as well, and we hope to grow that uh, in more in the Indigenous space as well in the coming year as we get more control of it. And that uh, is really important to me because it's about nourishment, right? And we're, what we're trying to do in the Indigenous space and other spaces is make sure that people always have a meal. And that fundamentally helps you process better, think better, helps kids function better at school, helps them change their life really because Mm. they can get higher education, they can change things that they're doing. So that $10,000 will be 5,000 meals. Wow. So 5,000 meals that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Exactly. Look, it's been an absolute pleasure. The restaurant is starting to get louder. It's starting yeah, to feel, yeah, it's and I know buzzing. what you mean now, why you would feel so excited about being a part of it. Now this is your baby, yeah. named after your gorgeous mum. It is, you know, yeah, so with my family working in it. Congratulations on being you, mate, and thanks, thanks for your us. time today. Thanks, mate. That was Neil Perry, and what I loved about that was that Neil has decided to go down his own path in his own unique way, and he's made such a wonderful success of himself that you just imagine if you got involved with him, you know you're involved with good people. The other thing is that I had a cup of tea and a bit of cake at Margaret uh, when we did the interview, and I tell you, it was absolutely spectacular. It was nice to get it for free too. I don't mind a freebie. Coming up next on Not An Overnight Success is Billy Shaw. Billy previously led a life in American politics as a senatorial and presidential campaign chief of staff. He is now a founder and executive chair of Share Our Strength, the parent organisation for the No Kid Hungry campaign. A big thank you to Shaw and Partners Financial Services who have generously supported this podcast and also donated $10,000 to the charity of choice of each of our guests to thank them for their time. Shaw and Partners are an Australian investment and wealth management firm who manage over $28 billion of assets under advice. With seven offices around Australia, Shaw and Partners act for and on behalf of individuals, institutions, corporates and charities. For more info, you can check out their website at shawandpartners.com.au. That's S-H-A-W for Shaw. Shaw and Partners Financial Services, your partners in building and preserving wealth.